Hello, I'm Dr. Christy Sutherland. And I'm David Ball. Welcome to Addiction Practice Pod. This is a podcast of the BC Echo and Substance Use from the BC CSU. This is recorded on the unceded traditional territory of the Coast Salish peoples, including the Musqueam, Squamish, and Salatooth Nations. I'm a family doctor and addiction medicine specialist. I'm also the physician education lead at the BC Centre on Substance Use, and I like to keep busy, so I'm also the medical director at the Portland Hotel Society in Vancouver's downtown east side. Busy with good things, though. I also am very busy. I'm a journalist in multiple platforms. I've spent more than a decade reporting on substance use, opioids, mental health, and the current overdose crisis. So this podcast is for healthcare providers, and we're focusing on issues in British Columbia around opioid use disorder. I love an interesting discussion. And in this podcast, we're going to hear from clinicians, policymakers, and people with lived experiences on approaches to substance use. So today we have a really good topic that will be helpful for clinicians. We're talking about youth and substance use disorder. It's a really important and interesting topic to me because as we've learned during this podcast series, uh, different populations have different needs and different sort of treatment approaches that work best. Yeah, and I think youth is definitely one of those. The term youth is broad and it can be understood to refer to someone who is in their early teens to their 20s. A common cutoff age for defining this demographic is 25. It can be clinically challenging to serve this population because youth are often excluded from clinical trials. So there isn't as much research specifically focused on youth issues in pharmacotherapy, especially when it comes to opiate use. I think there's also a concern that supports a young person might have before they turn 19 can suddenly stop. For instance, if they're in the foster care system and there just aren't that many youth focused clinics or resources in BC or the Yukon. This is really important because youth need treatment models that are tailored to their specific circumstances. Totally. I mean, in primary care, we say it's all about the context of the person's life. And I think in youth, that's so important. Youth are often not daily users. So traditional treatments like opiate agonist treatment would cause an iatrogenic physical tolerance to opioids that doesn't exist at baseline. What's iatrogenic mean, Christy? Iatrogenic is when an illness is caused by a medical treatment. And then with the toxic drug supply, youth can be at risk of overdose, even when they don't have a diagnosis of substance use disorder. Today, we want to bring you a few different perspectives on treating youth with substance use disorder. I talked to Haley Anderson, who was a teenager with substance use disorder, and she now works with street-involved youth. She's part of a long-term study, actually, in partnership with the BCCSU. And we're also going to hear from Gwen Lister. She's a registered social worker with AIDS Vancouver and works mainly with young people who use drugs, as well as those who identify as being in recovery. But first, we want to hear from a parent who's experienced this in her family. Leslie McBain lost her only child, Jordan, to an accidental drug overdose in 2014. Jordan was only 25. Leslie went on to found Mom Stop the Harm and is the family engagement lead for the BC Centre on Substance Use. Thank you so much for joining us, Leslie, and uh, and talking about this. Oh, thanks. Thanks for the opportunity. I I wanted to start just, you know, having lived through uh, losing your son and working with so many other parents whose children are struggling with addiction uh, or who have faced similar losses to yourself, what do you wish the healthcare system did differently? I've thought about this a lot and it's, it's sometimes it's contentious uh, on both sides, but um, what I would love to see across the board in the future is that um, when a youth, a child or a youth is in care on any level that the attending medical person would engage the family 
if only to gather information about the patient. Um, who knows the patient better than the mom or the mom and dad or the family? And I just think this information would be incredibly valuable in the care. Could you sort of give an example, perhaps, um, from your experience? Well, my personal experience with this was was exactly what not to do. When my son came to when Jordan came to me and said he felt that he was addicted and needed help, he had been prescribed oxycodone for seven months by his doctor, which was, by the way, my doctor. We went to him. Jordan asked if I would go with him. And Jordan confessed that he was addicted. And the doctor's response was to become really angry, to call him a liar because he was an addict, in, in the doctor's words, and to basically fire him as a patient. I would like to see doctors be, first of all, educated, have some education around addiction medicine, um, have some education around compassion for families, and many do, many do, but many don't. I think the relationship between families and the physician is second only to the relationship between the families and the, and the patient. Leslie, what do you wish other parents knew when they're going into a clinical setting with their child and if their child is uh, dealing with substance use disorder? We've talked about this in Mom Stop the Harm and parents are, in, in this situation, they are desperate, they are scared, they probably haven't been in this situation before. And often um, that kind of fear and, and anxiety comes out as anger or, you know, in some way maybe disrespectful. So I would want parents to be aware that the their demeanor and their um, sort of acceptance of the situation will only help the physician or the the staff in um, dealing with their their child or their loved one. So one of the things parents need to know is not only to advocate for themselves as a family and for their child, but also to keep the uh, atmosphere as peaceful as possible, because that's what's going to really work in that setting. Well, I can totally see those emotions are so heavy uh, to carry. And then to come into a doctor's office is such a stressful time and such sort of like um, a high pressure moment for a family that it would be a challenge. Mm -hmm. If a parent is uh, lucky enough, as I was, to have um, the trust of their child and, and to, for, for him to invite me into that office as an advocate uh, was really a huge gift to me. If there can be some kind of meeting of the minds between the parent and the, and the child and, and the trust developed, the whole situation is one in which everybody wants it to go in the right way, which is uh, to health and balance. Well, thanks a lot for joining us and sharing your story and your thoughts with us today. Oh, thank you so much for the opportunity. Leslie McBain is with Mom Stop the Harm, and she's also the family engagement lead at the BCCSU. I just find her story so impactful, and but also inspiring because of how much she's doing on this. Yeah, I mean, it breaks my heart to think about the grief and loss that people have endured. But at the same time, it makes me so happy to do this work because I love taking care of my patients. Um, and it's nice to think that hopefully we have an impact. It's so important for clinicians to hear from family members and caregivers of young people with substance use disorder. When family networks are there to support a young person, they can be a huge resource. Unfortunately, not everyone has that parental support network as a resource. 
Haley Anderson started using drugs at age 11 and was homeless by her late teens. And like all people, her drug use and her experiences surviving on the street didn't define her. But they do play a significant role in the barriers she found accessing healthcare. She's now 25 and a peer research associate with the multi-year study from the BCCSU of street-involved youth called Arise. It's something that I'm really passionate about. I've always wanted to work with youth, especially youth dealing with mental health and addiction issues. Uh, I myself dealt with that for a very long time since I was young. Are you finding that as a peer researcher and, and with the kind of work that you've done with youth that you're finding similar experiences today with what you experienced as a youth? Yes, definitely a lot of the same experiences. Um, it doesn't matter who you are or how old you are or what race or where you came from or what you did. I mean, a lot of us are, are seeing the same kind of experiences with with things, especially with the lack of help or the stigmatism that we face or um, seeing things like that they that they've been like neglected in services and and just really trying to find people that you trust and can rely on and can really help you get into like the next step of your life whatever that may be Hmm. could you tell us a little bit about your own experience i pretty much just became friends with a lot of older people that were already kind of in that scene and i would see them using substances and drinking a lot and just having fun and letting go and that's definitely something that I always wanted in my life. I was really depressed. I had bad anxiety. Um, I just was in a really, really, really bad mental health space. And um, yeah, I saw that as a way to escape. By the time I was about 14, uh, I started using fentanyl. And it just got to the point where I got in a lot of dangerous situations. And a lot of my friends had passed away or they were gone off doing their own thing and just weren't really all there anymore. And I was alone for, for quite a long time. That's uh, an incredible journey and such incredible strength that you have. I'm sorry for all the losses along the way. That that must take a huge toll on youth, especially now that you must have seen as the fentanyl supply got poisoned, that taking its toll. I have, I think, lost more friends since I got clean than before that. It's just been like death after death after death after death. But at the end of the day, it's really what keeps me strong and keeps me going and keeps me wanting to do what I do and to keep working with these people and and know that that doesn't have to be their story. Mm. Did you ever have... I know because this podcast is for medical providers, so doctors, nurses, um, frontline providers. Were there any barriers that you faced that could be addressed by providers? Yeah, definitely. Um, Pretty much the entire time that I was using, even I would go to like youth clinics and and I tried to access a few medical places. Um, There was a lot of judgment there. Um, I feel that as soon as I went in, and I was open and honest about what was happening. 
then they kind of like pegged me as like, okay, well, you're a drug user. We're not going to give you this. We're not going to give you that. We're not going to do this for you. We'll give you like the bare minimum. I've literally been turned away from medical help just because I was in active addiction. There was an instance where I went to a clinic uh, in Vancouver and one of the doctors that I was seeing, I was on methadone at the time, and he pretty much told me that, like, I didn't need it. It's not something that I should be on. Like, just get clean. Just don't use or don't have, like, a crutch and refused to fill my prescription. He wouldn't refill it. He wouldn't refill any of my other prescriptions, even, like, my sleeping medication, even to like my asthma inhaler. Like he was just like, get out of here. And I didn't do anything. I just came in and was like, Hey, I just need a new script. All my meds are out. But he saw what was on my file and was like, no, I'm, I'm just refusing to, to give you anything. How discouraging. Yeah, it, it, it was. And I, and then I had started using again for quite a while just because I was so, I was just so enraged and discouraged at the medical system and at this clinic. And I didn't want to get back on meds. I was, I was really almost like embarrassed of, of what I had gone through. And that just caused me to make an even worse decision and relapse. And, um, yeah, definitely could have been avoided, I think. Mm. What would your message be for frontline health providers about when they work with uh, a, a youth who has substance use and, and comes to them, presents to them either looking for help for that or for other things? Nobody knows what anybody is really going through. We are all human and we all need help sometimes. And that is one of the biggest, hardest things is taking that first step to get help for, for any sort of thing when, when you're in that type of lifestyle and situation. For them to reach out and go to someone and try to put their trust in you, okay, this is my job. This is what I'm here for. I need to help this person in the best way possible, no matter what their circumstances are or what their life choices were or what happened to them. We're losing people all the time. And a lot of times it's people who were too afraid or too embarrassed to reach out for help. You know, you're in active addiction or you're clean or whatever you, you choose to do, you are important. Mm. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you. Haley Anderson is a peer research associate with Arise, a multi-year study from the BCCSU of street-involved youth. I'm so grateful that she shared her story with us. It's so powerful to hear. Definitely. Next, we're going to hear from a clinician. Glenn Lister is a registered social worker and has a master's in public health. She works with AIDS Vancouver, primarily with young people who use drugs, as well as those who identify as being in recovery from drugs and alcohol. Uh, yeah, hi. Just wanted to socially locate myself. Uh, just a, I'm a white settler, you know, on stolen indigenous lands of the Coast Salish people, specifically the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh people. And I say that as a, a land acknowledgement and also to highlight the fact that many of the issues we currently face as society related to substance use 
are exacerbated and historically shaped by colonialism and white heteropatriarchal systems. Um, I'm in recovery from alcohol and drugs myself. I've been working in the field of harm reduction and recovery, and yes, I'm using those together, uh, for about 10 years. I've worked as an outreach worker, a trainer and educator. I've worked in harm reduction programs and detox settings, inpatient treatment facilities, and currently as a case manager and programming coordinator. When we talk about uh, street-involved youth who use substances, uh, we know the research shows that a disproportionate number are members of the LGBTQ community. I'm wondering if there's any advice you have for care providers on being better allies in healthcare spaces. A lot of times we assume that Maybe kids are being naive or being rebellious. And I think that most of the time, youth and young people, especially queer and trans folk, are kind of acting logically given their circumstances. Um, as a provider, if you are curious about why and when people are using, um, it gives a lot of insight into what types of services or support that they m might want or that might be appropriate, or also what needs aren't being met with street-involved youth who are being kicked out of their homes or don't feel safe in their homes. They also will look for, you know, social support and a chosen family. And so I think it's really important to kind of understand where they're coming from and who they're relating to and who are the people that they're spending most of their time with, what type of influences, you know, are they having in these uh, people's lives and how can we kind of utilize them as a support system to kind of help pe young people kind of reach their goals, whatever those goals are. So looking at the research for youth demonstrates that young adults and minors are more likely to have polysubstance drug use rather than using just one drug. Can you talk us through how that might look as you're caring for people? So over 90% of people who use drugs also use alcohol. We think that people are, are using one drug or another, even though a lot of people are using multiples, and then we treat them differently. Something that I've been noticing a lot is the healthcare system is treating meth and stimulant users differently than opiate users. In my experience, uh, we're, we're, we've been doing a good job, you know, in Vancouver at least, of, of trying to treat opiate users with compassion and providing medication and rescue medications, but meth users are still kind of going through this revolving door through the healthcare system, especially when it comes to psychosis. So a lot of people's psychosis is not taken seriously. Providers aren't really understanding that there's actually underlying mental health and uh, trauma that's not being addressed and that the meth is kind of just exacerbating that or maybe consistent and long-term meth use has actually caused chemical imbalances. And so that it actually does make sense to treat underlying mental health conditions while people are still using stimulants. And I think that that's something to really understand is they might be, um, you know, we say jonesing. So they might be jonesing for a specific drug, but it doesn't mean that they're not necessarily using other things as well. With meth, what, we've, what, what I've experienced with young people and what other young people have said um, is that a lot of times people, especially street-involved youth, start using meth in order to stay awake at night and to keep themselves safe on the streets. You know, really understanding why people are using and what kind of supports they can need um, is a really important thing. 
Yeah, that really resonates with me as a clinician because I think I'm always sort of checking myself to make sure I'm not missing an underlying diagnosis for someone who uses drugs. Because I think especially for crystal meth, they come in with rashes or with, um, you know, wounds. or There's so many things that you can just say, oh, that's the crystal meth that's causing that. Uh, And then you have to take a moment as a clinician and say like, oh, what else could be causing this? Am I missing an underlying diagnosis here? I think for both mental health concerns and physical health concerns for people who use drugs, it can get dismissed as just part of their drug use. A lot of providers are getting better about asking questions, screening questions about substance use. I think sometimes, you know, we we can be a little antsy when first meeting someone and maybe not explore things further or feel like we might put them off. But um, I think that people, especially youth, can really tell when someone is listening and being real with them. uh, And then they can sniff out pretty quick if you're judgmental or if you're checking off boxes and trying to push them out the door. So I really feel like um, it just takes that little bit extra effort, build the rapport, provide a safe space. And then eventually, even if it's not the first time you see them, eventually folks will be open to feedback or ideas or being open to you about what's really going on with them. Yeah, so you, you really anticipated one of our questions because I wanted to ask you, if you, what's your advice for family doctors and community who are taking care of youth and youth who use drugs um, to keep them engaged in care? Because we know that we often lose them to follow up. They don't want to come back to our offices. I know not everyone is, you know, kind of specializing in that area. And so I think it's really important for any family doctor to really understand substance use. And so I like to use a, a chair analogy which sounds weird, but I like when I'm first talking to people about, you know, drug and alcohol use and and addiction and what it is and what it's not and things like that. I use my chair analogy. So it's it just basically goes like drugs are like chairs. They're not inherently good or bad. They just are. And it's how I'm using the chair and my relationship to the chair that matters. So, for example, I can use a chair to rest and relax, uh, take a load off and, you know, center myself or socialize with other people, or I can, you know, fall back because I'm leaning backwards on it and crack my head open, or I can use it to break a window. When I explain it like that, and it's just kind of like people's relationship and association with substances. And so we're really working to, why is this person relating to this substance in this way? And work through it with the person to figure out, you know, kind of what's happening. And then Is there a way that we can support them in reducing their risk and their harm? Is there a way we can support them? Do they feel like they want to change their relationship with the substance? Do they feel like maybe they should just use and sit on couches instead of chairs? That type of thing. So I think that's one piece. I love that. (laughs) I think that's wonderful. There aren't a lot of youth-focused clinics, especially outside the Lower Mainland in the province. I'm wondering what advice you have to a care provider who may have a, a young patient dealing with substance use that uh, you know doesn't have access or places to refer people. Definitely get to know whatever case management services are in your area or referral services are in your area. You know, know what numbers to give people if you think you know that they might use it. If you're giving people like a buffet of options then you're encouraging them to make their own choices. And especially young people always love to make their own choices, right? I mean, everyone does. And the more we empower them, the more that they're going to keep coming back. 
I think that it is important to talk to people about who is important in your life. Are you completely isolated or do you have friends or family members that really care about you? And how can we engage them with you in care? You know, in Western medicine, a lot of the model is the doctor is the expert and is telling the patient what to do. And so it, that can work when things are working really well. But I think that a, a lot of uh, young folks who might be using substances um, on a regular basis might, they might feel chaotic, they might feel scared a lot of the times. And so I think that um, figuring out what's important to them, what's giving them purpose. We don't ever obviously guess these things for our our clients or our patients. But a lot of times I think patients and young people, they know the answers. They don't necessarily need answers prescribed for them, but they do need kind of a little bit of coaxing back and forth in conversation to see what might I be able to access in my own community and in my own resource net that I haven't been yet. Well, I wanted to thank you, Gwen, for your time today and for taking the time to talk to us about about your experience with youth. Yeah, well, thanks um, for your time as well. It's been good. Gwen Lester is a registered social worker and has a master's in public health. She works with AIDS Vancouver, and I just found, you know, a lot to think about in there. Oh my gosh, that's really impactful to my practice. I feel I'm going to be a better clinician for having met Gwen. What I loved about Gwen's interview is that she had so many useful ways to approach caring for youth, as well as our approach to thinking about drug use in society. That chair metaphor really summed it up for me. Some of the issues we discussed in this episode are systemic, but others are changes you can make in your clinical practice tomorrow. To sum up what we heard from our guests in this episode, here are some clinical pearls to leave you with. When it's appropriate and with the permission of the youth, you can involve family. Think about safety. Is this person safer from overdose or harm with their family involved? Confidentiality is part of our duty as clinicians, and we want to involve family with the permission of our patients and when it's appropriate. If you can't discuss specific clinical issues with the family, as Leslie said, you can still provide them with resources, support, and education without breaking patient confidentiality. When making a clinical plan, understand the context of a person's life. Do they have a strong network? What is the context of their drug use? If there's street involved, find ways to help reduce harm. Address and optimize mental health, housing, supports, money, and goals alongside treating substance use. Treating opiate use disorder in youth has many similarities to the adult population, but there are some subtleties to consider. These are discussed in the youth supplement to the opiate use disorder guidelines, which we link to in our show notes. Be candid, sincere, and caring with your approach. Be transparent with your thinking. Here's what I'm thinking for you for your options, and here's why. Youth can really tell when you fake it. And like Haley said, when you're faced with a lot of judgment, it's harder to seek help, let alone return for a follow-up treatment. As primary care clinicians, one of our strengths is a longitudinal relationship of trust with our patients. This is why I love being a family doctor. Thanks so much to our guests today, Leslie McBain, Haley Anderson, and Gwen Lister. So a lot to take in, but I think that we've learned a lot. Yeah, I think that this will have a real impact on my clinical care. This has been Addiction Practice Pod, the podcast of the BC Echo on Substance Use. The BCCSU has resources for families with loved ones who use drugs, which are useful for clinicians as well. 
So you can find these in our show notes, along with the clinical guidelines for working with youth that Dr. Sutherland mentioned. We also have a short survey, and we'd love to hear from you so that we can create the best possible podcast for primary care providers. To learn more about the BC Echo on Substance Use, visit bcechoonsubstanceuse.ca. The Echo Sessions are a great resource, and you can take them for free. This has been a production of the BC Centre on Substance Use. It was made possible through a financial contribution from Health Canada. The views expressed do not necessarily represent the views of Health Canada. I'm David Ball. Christy, it was really great to chat to you. Oh my gosh, David, it's always a pleasure. I'm Dr. Christy Sutherland. Thank you so much for listening.